I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, Hebrews 13. We'll be reading verses 1 through 6, Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear What can man do to me? Even a cursory reading of the epistle to the Hebrews will reveal that in terms of its tone and thrust, chapter 13 is markedly different from chapters 1 through 12. Because no longer do we find, as in previous chapters, Warnings regarding the danger of apostasy, of turning away from Christ. Here in this chapter, there's no attempt on the part of the writer to demonstrate the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament rituals and sacrificial system. Having done all that, the writer is largely concerned about providing his readers with exhortations, with ethical instructions as to how they should live as those who profess faith in Christ. This is a lesson for us. After going in depth in doctrine, chapters 1 through 12, the writer is now focusing on the ethical implications of those doctrines. In other words, doctrine must exhibit itself in deportment. Now, ending the way it did or rather ending the way they did, in urging believers to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Verses 28 and 29 of Hebrews 12 seem to have no bearing on what follows in the series of exhortations we have here in Hebrews chapter 13. But the truth is they do have a bearing on these exhortation, because part of what it means to worship God acceptably, part of what it means to worship him with reverence and with godly fear, is to reflect his love by lovingly relating to one another in the context of Christian community. And that is not just a pious statement. In fact, Jesus underscored that principle For example, in Matthew chapter 6, where he says, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, then leave your gift there at the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Which suggests to us that there is no real, meaningful worship of God where we are not in right relations with our fellow believers. 
And a great portion of this chapter, particularly verses 1 through 6, is all about this matter of Christians relating to one another in love within the assembly. Verse 1 begins, let brotherly love continue. The word that is used here for love is Philadelphia. It's a word I suppose all of us are familiar with. The Philadelphia, it literally means love of the brethren. Love of the brethren. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9, 1 Peter 1, verse 22, as well as 2 Peter 1 and verse 7, this word is variously translated as brotherly affection, brotherly kindness, or as brotherly love. The word speaks of such affection that characterizes the relationship between siblings of such affection that is characteristic of those who are of the same family. The word of God seizes upon this word, calling on believers to love in precisely that way, to love as brothers and sisters in Christ, to love as members of the family of God. Now that these Hebrew Christians are commanded to let brotherly love continue implies that they were already practicing this Christian grace. In fact, we know such to have been the case because back in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10, the writer reminded them by way of encouragement. He said to them there in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So in other words, by the writer's own admission, they were already practicing this brotherly love. But the call to brotherly love, let brotherly love continue, could also imply that they were slackening, that they were declining somewhat in this vital area of their Christian walk. And we can say this because against the backdrop of their sagging faith, against the backdrop of their tendency toward turning away from Christ, some of them, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, were in the habit of neglecting fellowship such that the writer had to urge them there in Hebrews 10, 24, 25. The writer said this to them, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging encouraging one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Their declining faith, you see, was manifesting itself in diminishing love for one another. And clearly we see the principle established here that where believers in Christ are not given to the gathering of God's people when they can, when it is in their power to do so, then that signals a decline of love not only for God but for the brethren. And really this is a challenge of Christians in every age. It is a challenge from which you and I are not immune, the propensity to wane, to decline in this grace of Christian love. 
No wonder it is that scripture highlights the need for us as Christians to be ever abounding in the grace of love. Paul prays for the Philippian Christians in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9. He says there, And this I pray that your love may abound more and more in all knowledge and judgment. The need for our increasing in love for one another is set forth in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 12, 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3. Indeed, the writer's call to his readers here in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, to let brotherly love continue was most timely. It was a most timely exhortation when we consider once again the particular circumstance these Christians were facing at that time. Remember, as we said in previous studies, these Jewish believers were being severely, severely persecuted, oppressed for their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, in the words of Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, the writer said, This how that they had endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Verse 34 of that same chapter, Hebrews chapter 10, tells us how that they suffered, among other things, the seizure of their properties. And as Bible commentator R.C.H. Linsky observes, quote, any one of the readers who would be inclined to give up Christ and to revert to Judaism would promptly show that decline in faith by coldness and indifference to his Christian brethren, end quote. Indeed, the reminder we have in Scripture to let brotherly love continue, we could say then, is a most timely one for you and me today. Because if not for the grace of God, if not for God's grace, here's the point. Seasons of hardship, of suffering, seasons of opposition and persecution can have a hardening effect on the heart. Beloved, as the days in which you and I live intensify as far as hardships are concerned, as far as opposition to Christians are concerned, it becomes all the more critical that you and I give serious, intentional regard to this matter of loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ in the family of God. Because once again, difficult times, times of tension, times of stress, are times when we can easily become self-absorbed, inwardly turned, thinking of no one else but ourselves and our own personal needs. Are we seeing some of that in our time? Where, as the days become more and more difficult, Christians, God's people, professing believers in Christ, are tempted, are inclined to withdraw in their own corner, absorbed with their own concerns to the exclusion of virtually everyone else. In fact, how serious is this that I'm saying to you? You recall back in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verses 6 through 12, our Lord Jesus, as he outlined conditions that would characterize the last days preceding his coming, he says this, Matthew 24, verses 6 through 12, he says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation, that is, the word there has to do with ethnicity, 
Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then here's what he says, verse 10, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And verse 12, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I believe that's where we are in our time. And I believe then the urgent need for us as God's people to ensure that we are truly loving one another as the word of God says we should. And this is a critical topic. Why? Because if we're talking about revival, if we're talking about spiritual renewal, if we are expectant that God would bless and that God would prosper us as a church, then one of the things that must be characterized us, that must characterize us is this matter of love and growth in the area of Christian love. Now, in developing this subject of Christian brotherly love, let's consider, first of all, that according to the Word of God, while we are commanded as Christians to show love and goodwill to all people, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12, we are particularly called to Philadelphia, that is, to practice the kind of love that is kind, affectionate love for our fellow believers in Christ, the kind of love that marks those who share a common kinship. That is why in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul can write to the Galatian Christians, he says this, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good to all men, but notice what he says, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. The implication then is that among believers in Christ, there is to be a sense of familial kinship that generates a greater degree of love than that expressed toward humanity in general. Second, according to the word of God, love for one another as Christians is an unspoken given. Love for one another as Christians, according to the word of God, is an unspoken given. That is to say, there's, there's an implicit expectation that Christians should love one another. And so it is as Paul writes to the Thessalonian believers, he says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you because you yourselves have been taught of God to love one another. That phrase, taught of God, translates one Greek word which functions as an adjective. It is used here in an adjectival sense, and it is literally rendered God-taught. So that the text literally reads, you yourselves are God-taught with a view to loving one another. And what Paul is saying here is simply this, that the Christian's love for other believers is a divinely intuited impulse. 
It is a divinely intuited impulse also because according to Romans chapter 5 verse 5, part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to generate, is to shed abroad in the hearts of believers a sense of God's love. And in so doing, it follows that he will likewise implant in our hearts, instill in our hearts, the disposition of love for fellow believers in Christ. According to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, love is set forth as the fruit or outworking of the Spirit. That is something we must get our minds around, that we in and of ourselves will not be able to love as God would have us love. Why? Because the capacity and the ability to love other believers, to love full stop, is divinely implanted. Third, the Word of God teaches that love for one another as Christians is the highest expression of Christian relationships. Scripture everywhere calls attention to the primacy of Christian love. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, 1 Timothy 6, 11, 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, the Christian, notice, is urged to pursue or follow, that is to say, run after, hunt down, love What does that tell us? It tells us this, that love, to really love as God would have us love as Christians, is sometimes elusive. It is not natural to us. It is not a part of our natural disposition. That is why, according to the word of God, first of all, it is the fruit of the Spirit. And secondly, it is something we must follow after. We must run after it. We must pursue it vigorously because left to ourselves, we will never love the way in which God would have us love one another. Let all that you do be done in love. Paul counsels the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 14. Let love be genuine, he writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. In fact, in writing to his young protege, Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, he would have Timothy understand that the aim of his charge to him was this, it is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul says this, even in my own teaching, the aim of my teaching, the aim of my charge is to generate, is to inspire Christian love. The need for genuine brotherly love is similarly echoed by the Apostle John in 1 John 3.18. There John says this, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Genuine Christian love. The point of these verses then is that the love to which God has called us, the love to which the word of God summons us, is to be not merely sentimental and verbal, rather it is to be a love that is based on truth. It is a love that is to be practical. Love that works for the good of our fellow believers. The primacy of Christian love is 
is set forth in Colossians 3 and verse 14, where Paul, as he writes the Corinthian Christians concerning the various graces they are to develop, grace of compassion, grace of humility, grace of kindness, he says to them in Colossians 3 verse 14, and above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Or as one version puts it, love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And then the primacy of Christian brotherly love is particularly evidenced by the fact that love for one another as Christians is expressly commanded by God. It is not left to our preference, it is not left to our desire as to whether we love or whom we will love as Christians. God commands us to love one another. Our Lord Jesus made this demand of his disciples in John 13, verse 34. He said this, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. You have no choice, he's saying. It is incumbent on you, if you name the name of Christ, if I name the name of Christ, it is incumbent on us that we love one another. Again, he says this in John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Under divine inspiration, the Apostle John, throughout his, his epistles, impresses on his readers the importance of Christian love, the primacy, the priority of Christian love. He presents to them the idea that loving others, believers, loving other believers in Christ is a divinely imposed duty. In 1 John 4.21, he writes, and this commandment we have from him... Whoever loves God must love his brother. And even as he urges his readers, even as he urges by extension you and me to love one another, he gives the rationale for doing so. Notice 1 John 4 verse 7, beloved, he says, let us love one another for, here's a premise, for love is from God. First John 4, 10 and 11, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We ought Now it gets even more serious for the Apostle John. Because according to John, the reality of one's professed relationship to God is measured, is gauged by one's love for the brethren. John will, for example, assert in 1 John 4, 20 and 21, and he does so in black and white terms, in non-negotiable terms. He says this, if anyone says, or more literally, if anyone should say, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love also his brother. You see that? John is categorically clear. He doesn't mince words. He says this, if a person should say, I love God, and is hating his brother, and every time you read these verbs, they are in the present continuous tense. It, so the idea is this, if anyone is saying, I love God, and even as he's saying that he's hating his brother, he's a liar. Conversely, he says this in 1 John 5 and verse 1. Here's how John states his categorical imperative when it comes to the need, the importance of Christians loving one another. He says this, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. You see the interchange between loving God and loving others or fellow believers in Christ? He's saying you cannot have one without the other. For John, then, it's very simple. We are not loving our fellow believers in Christ as commanded by God. Therefore, we are not loving God. It matters not how much we feel about God. It matters not how excited we are about God. It matters not how much we talk about God. He says, if we are not loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we're not loving God. In short, our love for one another as Christians, John is saying is indispensable to our love for God and to our fellowship with God. Now, as regards the primacy of love, John speaks not only of the Christian's duty, his divinely imposed duty to love one another. He not only speaks of love for the brethren being a measure, a gauge, a test of one's relationship with God, but John also makes this critical point that love for one's fellow believer is a key defining quality of one who is genuinely saved, of one who is truly born again. John will take this matter down to our very salvation and he will say this. You want to know that you are saved? One of the ways you know you are saved is in this matter of Christian love. For the Apostle John, it's not enough for one to merely profess saving faith in Christ. Saving faith in Christ for John must bear the accompanying fruit of love one for another. And so here John, as he makes the following declarations, 1 John 3 verse 10, By this it is evident. Who are the children of God? By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. By the way, stop there for a moment. We have here John giving us a picture of humanity. And in that picture, that picture, may I use a common word today? That picture is binary. It is binary. It's, it's, you are, one is either a child of God or a child of the devil. And I don't say this glibly, I don't say this with joy, but here's the truth. If you're not saved, if you have never professed faith in Christ as Savior, if you're not a disciple of Christ, then you're a child of the devil. 
course, all of that can be changed. John chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, that is the Lord Jesus, to them he gave the right, the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. But John is saying here, this is the way it is evident as to who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The matter of one's assurance of salvation, here's what John says in 1 John 3, verse 14. He says this, We know that we have passed from death into life. How, John? Here's what he says. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 1 John 3.23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of God. That's salvation. How are we saved? We believe in the name of the Son of God. He says this, this is a commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of God, his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Now, don't misread this to say, well, one of the ways we become saved, okay, we must do this, and in addition, we must love our brother. No, it's a way, John is, the way that John makes a statement here, the effect of the statement is that if we are truly believing on Christ, because remember now, it is faith alone in Christ that saves, right? Faith alone saves. It's not our goodness, it's not the fact that we love our neighbors, but what John is suggesting here is that an outworking of true saving faith is this demonstration of love for those who are likewise saved. 1 John 4 verse 7, whoever loves, John says, has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 4 verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 1 John 5 verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now somebody says this morning, boy, Patrick isn't really preaching, he's really padding he comes up with all of these verses, and of course, he's just reciting verses, going through verses. We want to hear comments. We want to hear preaching. Someone might be saying, why spend this time, this time, this great deal of time going through all of these verses, which by and large are quite familiar to us? And to that we would really answer because there's a world of difference, you see, because between knowing and doing what Scripture says we ought to be doing. The question is, how is it with you, with your life? I challenge myself this morning. Are we loving as we should? Are we loving one another as we should? Also, because we never get to the place where we are loving as we should, where we are loving one another as the Word of God commands us, there's a need for us to be constantly reminded of our duty in this regard, to love one another. So the question is, by way of challenge this morning, is where are we on this matter of love for the brethren? 
Bearing in mind that scripture calls us to love one another. Here's how Peter qualifies it. He says, seeing that you have purified your souls, you have been born again. He says, see to it that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. See to it. In other words, listen, it is not something that is just going to grow up on you like that. It's not going to come natural. See to it. Make sure, make every effort that you are loving one another earnestly, fervently from a pure heart. The question is, to what extent is such love being evidenced in your life, in my life? Because, you see, there's a way in which we can think we love. There's a way in which we can have good feelings toward others. Let me suggest to you that that is not necessarily Christian love. Because the picture that is presented of Christian love here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, is that of engagement with our fellow believers. Is that of involvement with our fellow believers. Is that of a caring regard for our fellow believers in Christ. To what extent is such love being evidenced in our lives? Truth be told, some of us might have to admit that we have an exceedingly hard time loving at least some Christians. Truth be told, we'd have to confess that we'd rather not be around certain of our fellow believers, those who have offended us. And if not for the grace of God, we may find ourselves even resenting them, withholding our speech, our greeting from them. My friend, here's the point. If that describes you, if you're in that situation where you are resentful, where you are bitter, or let me say this, you, there might not be any feeling of antipathy, of hatred, but if you are indifferent, according to the word of God, even to be indifferent is to be hating the brother or sister. I say that, you know why? Because sometimes you hear Christians say this, you know, I love him, I love her. But based on what he has done to me, she has done to me, I don't want to have anything <laughs> to do with him or her. I say hello, but that's it. But in my mind, I just simply blank them out. Have you ever heard that? Yes? That's what the Bible calls hating our brothers. We cannot be neutral in this matter of Christian love. We cannot be aloof and unengaged when it comes to the matter of Christian love. And my friends, if that describes you and more so, if you are content to be in that situation, if you imagine yourself justified in maintaining such negative stance toward the brethren, then here's the solemn, sobering truth you you need to hear. And the truth is this, beloved, that based on the word of God, particularly as we have seen throughout John's epistle, If such a state describes you, then here's the point. You are in a very bad spiritual way. You're in a very bad spiritual way. That is a spiritual condition which before God, you need to cry out for grace. You need to cry out for mercy. You need to go before God and you need to say, Oh God, I find myself hating. I find myself bitter. I find myself resentful. But by your grace, work your love 
in my heart. You may have been disappointed, disappointed because of being hurt, having been hurt. Having been in conflict with a fellow believer, and this is a very serious matter because as we have seen, continued animosity, continued resentment, continued bitterness, yes, continued disregard for other Christians may well signal the fact that one is not truly saved. I didn't say that. That's what the Apostle John says. We cannot justify feelings of sustained anger and resentment, justify ourselves and say, well, God understands. We have to deal with it. Now, someone may protest, you have no idea as to what I've been through. You have no idea as to how I've been hurt. You have no idea as to how this person has disappointed me. You have no idea as to the embarrassment I've suffered because of this person. And let's ask this question then for a start. Have you gone to that person? Yes? Have you gone to that person who has offended you? As best as you know how, have you sought reconciliation? Now make no mistake, we need to be clear on this and we want to balance out this discussion to make this point, here's a point we need to understand. If we are going to deal with this matter of Christian love, if we are going to venture to love as God would have us love, we need to realize this, that being Christian doesn't mean that loving our fellow believers is going to be always an easy, natural thing for us to do. The fact is, at times, we're going to find it quite a tall order. Quite a tall order. Quite a difficult thing to do. Yes? How many of you know that? Yes? And sadly, many are Christians struggling to love those brethren they find to be unlovable. What do they do? They throw in the towel, so to speak. They conclude that those, loving those whom they find difficult to love is an utter impossibility. Sometimes what people do, they walk away from the church. I don't want to be around so-and-so because, you know, I, you know. And we give all kinds of excuses, all kinds of reasons. And while they may be outwardly cordial, it's only a matter of pretense as deep within there's nothing but bitterness and resentment. The word of God challenges us this morning. He says, let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love can wane. Brotherly love can decline. And we have to see to it that our love is not mere tokenism. Our love is not mere sentiment. Our love is not mere word speaking. Chat GPT can do that. Oh, you don't know about chat GPT. You see, chat GPT, all it does, the, the AI spit out words. But John says, let us not love in word only, but in deed and in truth. You ask then, how can I get over this? How can I get to the point of loving as I should? 
To begin with, we need to understand the truth regarding brotherly Christian love. And this brings us to our second point. It doesn't mean being blind to the sins, the shortcomings, and foibles of our fellow believers. It doesn't mean turning a blind eye. It doesn't mean pretending that they don't annoy us, they don't irritate us. It doesn't mean that even as we are irritated by their foibles, we are to try hard to be nice, warm, and fuzzy. That, that's what we call pretense. And here's the point that I'm making. The Bible does not call us to a feeling. Love, Christian love, is not a feeling. Christian love is essentially, it is first and foremost a choice. It is first and foremost a decision to act in goodwill toward others, particularly those who are of the household of faith, even when they annoy us, even when they irritate us, even when they disappoint us. Because 1 Corinthians 13, love does not keep a record of wrongs. We could go on to say a whole lot this morning, but you know something? Perhaps one of the greatest incentives the Word of God gives us, one of the greatest ways the Word of God tells us how we can love is to consider Jesus. He says this, Just as God, for Christ's sake, forgive you, you also must forgive. And by extension, you must also love one another based on how God has loved you. It doesn't mean that we pretend to be nice even as we are irritated. We, we don't try to force some kind of feeling. Love is not a matter of feelings and sentiments. Rather, love is a matter of kind intention and action towards others, especially to those who name the name of Christ, irrespective of how we feel about them. And then secondly... If we're going to grapple with this matter of Christian love effectively, then we need to understand that true Christian love will always be tested. Will always be tested. How so? By virtue of the fact that the local church, the local church in which you you and I gather, such as RBCL, we gather as a family of God, we gather as brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet the fellowship, the assembly, consists of what kind of people? Sinners who have been redeemed by the grace of God. Those who, though redeemed, are still susceptible to sin. And the plain truth is that we'll have trouble, we'll have antagonisms, because at some point or another, here's the truth, somebody is going to rub us the wrong way. You get a church with godly individuals, with mature believers. You put them all together at some point or another. You're going to have some kind of antagonism. Why? Because of the reality of remaining sin. And here's the truth as I close. True, genuine love cannot be made evident on this side eternity apart from the context of potential antagonisms and conflicts. How would love grow? How would love be cultivated if it was not being cultivated against the backdrop of annoyances, difference of opinions, difference of tastes, difference of ways? See? And so the point is true, genuine Christian love will always be tested. We'll always find ourselves 
being challenged to love even when we don't feel like it. So that at the end of the day, love for our fellow believers in Christ, we could say is essentially nothing but the manifestation or outworking of the grace and love of God in our hearts toward others. It is God who by his spirit must do it. It is God at work in us who must love through us. And to the extent that you and I are filled with his spirit, the spirit of love will never begin to exercise the kind of love to which God summons us. Namely, brotherly love, Philadelphia, engagement, involvement with the brethren where there is a sense of kinship, where there is a sense of familial relationship, a sense of caring, loving regard one for another. What did our Lord Jesus say? He said this first, he says this in John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, not based on how much we talk. He says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. May God help us, may God grant that we would be an assembly, we would be a church that would grow in love one for another. And at the first blush of trouble, God would give us grace that we might deal with it effectively to his glory. For his name's sake,